Talk 1110-993 WBT, the Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. You can also email Pete at the Pete Callender Show.com. And uh, that's how you have to say it as well. Uh, we'll be testing later. All right, let's go over to the phones and get Sean on. Hello, Sean. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, sir. Thank you. Good. Um, first first time caller, so Well, I appreciate it. Hey, no worries. I hope yeah, it goes well. Your station. Well, thanks. I, I hope it goes well, but I make no promises. <laughs> <laughs> Got a question. Okay, so they closed the schools. Is the county and the state going to prorate the amount of taxes that they are charging these uh residents in that county? Would you like to take a guess at the answer? I'm going to go with <laughs> they're going to keep it in their coffers. Yeah. No, they there, there, there wasn't any refunding that was going on <laughs> of taxpayer money for. Uh, I mean, and, and honestly, I mean, what you had a lot of. Um, there were capital costs when everybody went virtual, right? There were capital costs associated with that. There was a lot of relief money. I mean, there's still a lot of COVID relief money. It's still unspent, right? So, right, yeah, but no taxpayers don't get any uh, any rebates for that. Sorry. Yeah. That. that- yeah. Well, welcome to the because right, well, there you go. It's another example because how many? Uh, if you are sending your kids to private school, do you think that the private school gets to keep charging you if they say we're not going to educate your kid? <laughs> so I'm thinking no. But right, yeah. What do I know? I'm just a radio host. Uh, Sean, thanks for the call, man. I appreciate I it. No worries. Take care. You too. I hope. See now that went very well. Now I hope Sean calls back. Let's go to Tom. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hey, Pete. I'm hey. a fan of your show. Well, thanks. My question is, well, in essence, Mecklenburg County lost, just lost, 3,500 students last year. If we've homeschooled for a year or a year and a half, why can't we just change the model? So no longer do we send our kids to school but put cl- cameras in the classrooms. You keep your kids at home and you get an a la, a la carte model where you pull what you want out of that system instead of having to just – Drink from the well and drink from the well. All right, so there's a lot of things there. So uh, the so what you're describing is pedagogy, right? The method of teaching. How are we doing this? And I mentioned earlier, kind of in passing, that the the model that we use, where you got one person standing in a classroom in front of, you know, a bunch of kids just doing the lesson or whatever, that's a very old uh, pedagogical model, right? Like that's it doesn't really work for a lot of kids or people nowadays with very uh, short attention span, you know, uh, limitations now that a lot of kids have. It's it's kind of boring. It has been like I never did well in those settings. Um, I would. And I mean, you've got the Internet now, which is the ultimate tool to go exactly. and find the, the information you need to teach yourself. So, I mean, there's still a place for teachers. Right. There's still a call for classrooms. Right. There's still a, a need for all the things that we have, except I, I would wager that 40 to 50% of the people who regularly send their kids to school would gladly keep them at home if they had an outlet and a way to pull a la carte style. You know, the important subjects, math, English, world history, mm-hmm. U.S. history. I mean, the civics, the things that make the difference, right? Theoretically, yes. And and you're, you're also running up, though, against the... Um the the value that in-person instruction provides a family that has to have both people working 
right? Or or chooses to have both people working, both well, parents I working. Think, I mean, I, I don't think you should take away. I don't know. That's a tough question. I think because. I just I believe it because we did this for a year and a half. It's a great opportunity to to turn things around. Oh, I agree. Like a lot of families that would never have considered homeschooling now have, have thought. And I know because we homeschooled, and a lot of parents approached us and were like, "Hey, how do we do this?" Because the school system is really letting us down. Right. And I just think because they've already done it for a year and a half, it's like the perfect time for somebody who's headed in, in that direction to take you know the bull by the horns. Um, but run for the school board, maybe, and make a giant and beneficial difference for the county and probably the state. So, right. So, what? I, well, I would say though that your suggestion also leaves in place though an assumption that the uh, the K twelve model is preserved in some fashion. And I'm a bit more radical uh, on that front. I would... well, I'm not for it, but I know there's a lot of families that need it, right? Right. And so, how do you create so? So, all right, on that I agree. Then I would say, yes, a safety net, sort of uh, a baseline of public schools that are available, because we all know that there are parents that do not care. They literally do not care about the education of their kids. Yeah, but I just think now's the time. They I agree. 3,500 kids. What better time to get out in front of it? Like, I you agree. You can't do worse than you did last year. I think. Yeah, and I think that, and I've said this to lawmakers throughout the last, throughout the pandemic, I said, this is not the golden opportunity to break this model up and yeah. to convince people that the the status quo K-12 system is not your friend. I don't yeah. know what better opportunity is going to come along. Like, you've got, not just, to, not only do you have um, the experimentation of different models uh, that kids can utilize, uh, but you also have the uh, the obvious, uh, uh, I mean, I don't say hesitancy, I guess, of the t- the NCAE, the teachers' unions all across the, co- uh, the country to, uh, you know, to stonewall the reopenings, knowing that it's hurting kids, right? The, and yeah. yet they do it. Um, if you haven't, if you're not aware of how much of your life is now tied to decisions that the education establishment and and the bureaucracy and the politicians, if you don't understand now how much of your life is tied to them and their decisions, I don't know any other clearer example you're going to get in your lifetime than right now. Yeah, I just think people are never going to be more open-minded to this kind of huge beneficial change yeah. than they are right now. Right. So, and, and look, the way that they did virtual learning was not good. I, I mean, like all of the studies that I've seen are showing, you know, terrible drop-off in student performance and all this stuff. Kids need the socialization. Uh, and, and, and you as a homeschool parent, you know this as well. Like this was always the knock on homeschools, right? Oh, they're not getting socialized. But homeschoolers would, would I mean, as you know, right, you put your kids into other activities so they it's get just, that. Right. That's like, just a giant fallacy. Exactly. I mean, if you do it right, you could literally educate your kid in a matter of three to four hours a day, and then they get all that, all the rest of that time to chase their dreams, the things they're excited about, sports, right. um, socialization, dance, all the things that make a kid a kid. Mm-hmm. Right, and so you also mentioned the Internet, which I remember there was a, uh, what's his name? I think it's Sir Kenneth Williams, I think it may be his name, and he did a... Uh, he did a TED talk and talked about uh, the K-12 model and how it is making kids dumb. And he's a big education reformer guy. He's been knighted. Uh, he's, he's, he's an he's English a, he's guy. He's a proponent of teaching kids how to think, not what to think. Correct. And 
He talks about how kids test off the charts for brilliance, and then they get into uh, uh, kindergarten, and, and by the third grade, they're now idiots. And like, what, did they just become not brilliant? Or did something happen to them in that K-12 model that destroyed whatever it was that, you know, um, the, the way they, their brains operate that destroyed that uh, or tamped it down? If I'm remembering his talk specifically, it was the educational model that we're all so deeply immersed in right now was set up to teach factory workers mm-hmm. how to do a basic function and then follow through on that task day mm-hmm. to day to day to day. And that's not, that's so far away from a classical education where you're, you're teaching kids to dig and to, criti- and to think critically. Right. Well, we are not training men of letters, right? That's not the point of our K-12 system. Tom, uh, I appreciate the chat. Thanks for calling. Um, he also described, I mean, if you think about it, the system we have now, it is based on a factory model, right? Kids are born on a certain day. They turn a certain age, and it's like, okay, now you're in. It's like, why are you putting these kids together? Well, they're just the same age. So their born-on date dictates their educational level. Like, that's kind of random, <laughs> right? But it's a factory model. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110-1800-WBT-1110-PETE-AT-THE-PETE-CALENDAR-SHOW.COM. Uh, I've got the piece for, uh, by doc, uh, Dr. Robert Lubke from the John Locke Foundation. I will get to some of his uh, thoughts on this editorial in a moment. It's just the, the problem I have with the uh, editorial board, uh, just in general, is um, like you can get other people to write these editorials. Seriously. Like, I don't... I, like. I don't understand why editors think that they can write this stuff and tell us like, Oh, as a board, we think this, like you all agree on this stuff. Why not just put your name on it and, or better yet, get somebody else, especially like national issues, whatever. I just, I got problems with editorials. Okay. The editorial boards, I got problems with them, but um, they say children don't need taxpayer funded private choice. They need a higher quality education. And that is a false choice. It's a false dichotomy. Those are not, ideas that I have to pick between. I can choose both. And in fact, I would submit that is how you get both. You get both. You get a high-quality education by allowing choice, by giving people the freedom to choose. That's how you get the high-quality education for the most amount of people. Why do I say that? Because I'm a free market capitalist. And That's what tends to provide the highest quality at the lowest cost for the most amount of people. All right, let me get to David. Hello, David. Thanks for hanging on. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Pete. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. What's up? Hey, a quick backstory. Is that cop coming for you? Is that cop coming for you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Quick backstory. I grew up in uh, Mount Pleasant. I went, we had a graduating class about 140. Okay. Uh, my wife is a product of the CMS school system. And when we had our daughter, we looked everywhere to find her a different school besides CMS. Mm-hmm. We found her a charter school, and we absolutely love it. And uh, even she does. She says, she says that she wishes she could went to a charter school versus CMS instead of CMS. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's the unfortunate experience that a lot of people do have. 
Um, yeah. and, and look, there are a lot of people that enjoyed their CMS experience. They enjoyed their K-12 experience. There are a lot of people that do. And I'm not trying to rob people of those experiences. I'm not trying to say you can't have that. I'm saying that you should be able to choose to have that. And if you go to a yeah. school, like, and here's the thing, too. If you as a parent had a good experience and you send your kid to the exact same school, but they're not having a good experience, you shouldn't be forcing them to stay if they're not having a good experience like you did. Right? Yeah, you're correct. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it just because people have these ideas you know, of, of what school was like when they were in school and they want that for their kid. And I get, I, I can understand that, but if it's not the same experience your kid is having, then why would you keep sending them there? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of parents don't have an option and this is the option. Yeah. This is how you give them the option. And uh, frankly, it's kind of disappointing that Republicans haven't uh, gone uh, much faster towards a full voucherized type of a model but I understand, like, that's hard to do. There's a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of people that are going to be very afraid of that because, like, oh, that's not the way things have always been done. Actually, if you look around the world, most of uh, the free world democracies actually do have these types of models. So yeah. uh, we're, we're kind of in the minority on that. Uh, Dave, I appreciate the call, sir. Thanks so much. And George, welcome to the show. Hey, George, how are you? Thank you. Listen, I don't have one of them there college educations, mm. but I'll tell you what, a few things I understand. Number one, what you got going on in CMS is education versus indoctrination. They don't want to educate. They want to indoctrinate. Secondly, why don't they educate people on Econ 101? You know, I'm 78, and I understand the basics. When they tell you the inflation rate is only 5.46%, people don't understand. The cost of living index does not include food and energy. Go to the store. Go to the gas station and look at the prices. Okay? Okay. All right, George, I appreciate the call. I, I Look, I cannot speak to what CMS teaches as far as economics goes. I know when I went to high school, I had an econ class. I mean, it was a home economics class. No, I'm kidding. But it was, no, I, had, I, I took economics. I had an economics class. And maybe that's how I ended up. As a free market capitalist, I don't know. <laughs> Look, here's the other thing, too, and I understand his point about the indoctrination, right? But education is, in fact, some form of, I know this is going to be controversial, but it is a form of brainwashing. I know my multiplication tables because I was brainwashed, okay? I know was a Jeff Madmon. People are like, what did he just say? Was a Jeff Madmon. It's like a Jamaican thing. no. Those are the first presidents of the United States. I still remember that. It's a mnemonic device. I did make it up myself. But uh, it was in high school. I was, we had to memorize all the presidents in order. And so I came up with little blocks of phrases. Was a Jeff Madmon. And that's Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. Those are your first five. So... That's brainwashing, is it not? You taught me to keep this thing in my head, and I still remember it 40 years later. Although, again, I came up with a mnemonic device all on my own. I was uh, more of a self-directed kid uh, on the education front. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Dr. Robert Lubke from the John Locke Foundation wrote in response to this editorial by the McClatchy board, uh, 
So yet another chapter in the paper's ongoing hate fest against the Popular Opportunity Scholarship Program, or as we like to call it, the OSP. Are you down with OSP? You know me. A voucher program that provides mostly low- and moderate-income kids a chance at a better education at a private school of their choice. A common complaint of opponents of the OSP is to say the program lacks accountability. In addition, though, to complying with all health, safety, and non-discrimination requirements, schools that accept OSP students are also required to meet certain academic and financial requirements. Standardized test, for example, uh, also, uh, and those test results get shared with the parents, and they can be forwarded over to the agency that administers the Opportunity Scholarship, right? So that's that's accountability. Um, each school also, if they get more than $300,000 in tuition revenue, um, they have to conduct a financial review and have the results forwarded to a state office as well. So there, there's government accountability, right? This is all big about people who see government as the answer to the problems, not the cause of many of the problems, right? The people who see government as the solution, like you would think they would be mollified by the fact that you have to run this stuff through the state. Look, look, we're accountable. We're showing them this stuff, right? What's the problem? News and Observer editors err because they base their statements on a narrow, top-down definition of accountability. Exactly. Exactly. This is a top-down view of what it means to be accountable. Not like parents from the from the bottom up, right? From the from the customer client level up, right? That's accountable uh, accountability. When the people that you're serving recognize the value you provide that's true accountability not somebody up above that says do this job oh and we think you did a good job based on these metrics that we've uh, outlined that we think you know are important so you've got a uh, top-down definition of accountability says it comes in more than one form accountability comes in more than one form Peer institutions, as well as local or regional accrediting agencies, are two ways to help maintain academic quality and ensure accountability. The truth is that ultimately, parents, not the state, are the ones who hold the schools accountable. Because parents select the schools for their children. OSB schools must be responsive to the needs of the kids and the parents. And if the schools are not, then families leave and they take the tuition revenue, the lifeblood of many public schools, they take it with them. Right. This accountability is an ever present reality for many private schools and something a lot of public schools just ignore. It's one of the things also let, got a taste of what it means to be an entrepreneur for about a well, the last almost two years before I uh, uh, started here, about 19 months or so. And until you do it, you don't understand it. I thought I understood it to some degree. I didn't until I actually do it. It's just there's a different mindset. And once you uh, once you feel it, once you uh, sort of embark upon the entrepreneurial path, uh, you start thinking in certain ways, you never go back. I, I, I'm still using like that side of the brain or whatever it is that got switched on. I still use it now. It's made me a better person. <laughs> uh, what is that name? Is that Kirk? Yes. All right. Hello, Kirk. Welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing good. good. Um, I was kind of agreeing with you on some of these things. Um, I think ultimately, though, you know, with public schools, you get what you put into it. Like with my children, my two children, you know, got 
a wonderful education that every year the school would score low, so they would get additional government funding, but it was mostly because the standardized tests were hard for people who spoke another language mm-hmm. to finish. They were very intelligent people. And one, you know, several of my new had straight-A averages, but just because of translations, they didn't. Mm-hmm. But the fact was, is my wife was involved. I was involved to a, lim- a lesser extent in our kids' education, and they're in college now and doing well. And I think a lot of times when I hear people complain about these schools, I'm like, well, are you involved in your kids' education? And they'll be like, no. And I'm like, well, there's your problem. Right. So, And I agree, but you got to go back to the uh, the root of that, like you, because you're just working off of an assumption that uh, you and others sort of have equal footing in recognizing that you need to be involved in your kids' education. And there are a lot of people that don't. And so this is a term, social capital, right? Like that that concept of social capital. Like, for example, um, do you know how to mow a yard? Mm-hmm. Right. How did yeah. you How did you learn how to mow a yard? My dad told me to go out and mow the yard, and I did it. <laughs> right. And then he came out and probably said, you missed a spot there. You did this. Like, what happens if the mower doesn't work? Here's how you turn it on, right? So that's social capital. So he And he learned that from somebody else, right, and passed it down to yeah. you. So that's the mm-hmm. idea. And so um, if you know the value of an education and you see this as the way to have a successful life afterwards, then you've already got that baked into the cake, so to speak. If Now, if you've got... Uh, a family with multiple generations that do not value education, then mm-hmm. they're at a disadvantage. They're not going to to make those same decisions. They're not going to be involved. They're not going to care. Um, and uh, and by the way, lest anyone think this is some sort of racial argument, it is not. I We have friends of ours who are very clear, like, we're waiting for the kids to turn five so I can turn them over to the schools and not have to worry about them for most of the day, <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. that's... That's it's it's a common belief. And that's also kind of what the what the model induces in parents as well. It gives them the license to do that, I think. Yeah, well, I, mean, I understand it. But I mean, it's like I, I've known I've lived in um, lower income housing before and I've seen it the other way where people who didn't have education you know, saw how their life was turning out right. and made a point of educating their children. So. I mean, I think that argument kind of falls apart because there have been people who are on the other side. It does, well, the ar- no, you're, you're stating the same argument that I did. Intelligence to see that hey, you've got to have this. No, Kirk, you're stating the same. You're, you're stating the same argument I did, which is whether or not the parent values the education, right? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, because like mm-hmm. you, I just said, you had you valued education, and you just mm-hmm. said you lived in low income housing, and so like that, that that's the example then you just gave, right? Is so um, this isn't a class thing. It's not a racial thing. It's just it's it's how do you get people to uh, to value education as the way out um, and and the, and the way to a a better life? And and then the second part of that is what exactly is the education that you're talking about? Because uh, some of the schools right are churning out mm-hmm. product that is not very good. They're teaching kids a whole bunch of stuff that they're never going to utilize or that they're, it's actually harmful to them to utilize rather than things like balancing a checkbook, for example, which now North Carolina yeah. is requiring students learn. So stuff like that, but also, you know, you got the trades, you have industries that are hurting for uh, workers. People can make a, people make a lot of money actually in the trades. 
And it's a huge oh, yeah. problem. Right. It's a huge problem. But everyone thinks that they got, you know, I got to go to college and that's the only way I'll be able to make a bunch of money. And that's not true at all. Not true at all. Uh, Kirk, I appreciate the call, sir. Thank you. Let's head on over to Boomer Von Kennen. He's going to talk a little bit about uh, the traffic. Oh, are, this, are you going to the Rolling Stones concert? I don't think so. No. Oh, you're unsure. Point. You're yeah. unsure at this point. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't look like it so far. <laughs> <laughs> are you just waiting for the tickets to materialize <laughs> yeah, yeah. in your pocket? out of nowhere. Right. <laughs> yes, that's right. right. That's right. How about you? You going? Uh, no. I saw the Rolling Stones at... Erickson Stadium, now Bank mm-hmm. of America Stadium, oh, yeah. on the Bridges to Babylon tour when uh, uh, Blues Traveler opened for them. That's and the so first I, year of the Panthers, wasn't it? Yeah, I feel like I checked the, the box, you know? Yeah. I feel like, boop, I got that one. Oh, yeah. 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 They've so. seen a few shows. One time, that Stevie Wonder was their opening act here in Charlotte. It was incredible. Oh, I bet. Oh, man, they tear it up. They're yeah, great. Plus, also, I'm not a big fan of uh, people in crowds. There so. you go. <laughs> well, it'll be a crowd for sure. <laughs> it'll, right. be, it'll be a crowd. By the way, Blues Traveler, I used to close out my Friday shows with uh, in Hancock style, in Hancockian fashion. Uh, hundred years. That was the show I would go out with. It was nine to midnight. On this very radio station, so it was probably the last song I played before my timeout. My Hancockian timeout. Timeout. <laughs> Uh, uh, by the way, the podcast for hour number one is now uh, available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. If you don't know anything about podcasting, don't worry. I can tell you it's very easy. It's basically radio, but it's on your uh, smartphone. And now, it, like, it's, yeah, you just take it with you, and it automatically downloads. You don't even have to do anything. So you just go to WBT.com, find the shows right there. you got the shows and you click on the shows and it says follow show and you do that. Or you can go to your favorite podcasting platform, type in my name or any host's name. The show will come up. You hit subscribe or follow and it's free. And then it just comes to your phone. And every day when they post, like right now, the first hour is available. Now, you shouldn't listen to the first hour while I'm still doing like the live show. That's just rude. So afterwards, you can kind of catch up. And Ryan works very hard, Lee, on the content there. Did you catch that? No, he didn't. All right, never mind. Well, so, uh, well actually, so my question is, are they going to be able to understand what you're talking about right now if they don't go back and listen to the first hour? Will they know what I'm talking about right now? Yeah. Well, I'm they, talking about podcasts right now. Well, I mean, in the last segment. Well, then you should have said that, <laughs> that it was the last. Would they have known what I was talking about in the last segment? Without, lis- without listening to the first hour. I think so. So do you when you read a book, do you turn to page forty and just understand? <laughs> I am actually the wrong person to ask that question of. Why? Because I Because <laughs> you don't read books? <laughs> well, that no, that is and then is one of the unfortunate I love reading, but because I read all day long, mm-hmm. I don't read. Oh, you don't read, yeah. That yeah. May, that does. I, I literally wake up and so I, I I tell people this, you know, two hours of prep for one hour on air content and so I wake up at six in the morning, I put on a pot of coffee and I start show prepping and I work until I come in here and then I do the show and then I go home and I continue 
show prepping. Let me rephrase my question then. Yes. When you and when oh, hang on, one last thing though is that I ever since I saw the movie when Harry met Sally, which was twenty years ago, I read the last page of the book. Do you really? Yeah. <laughs> I read the last page of the book. So my question was going to be, and this this might answer my question now. So when you're doing your prep, do you jump to the fourth paragraph of, of your prep articles as opposed to reading the first sentence? No, no. I just read the headline. And that's it. I just, and then I comment. It's like Facebook. I read the headline. I comment. I just run my mouth. And... Uh, yeah, and I block people. Block, yeah, block, block, yeah, block. Yeah, you block, just block. spew off uh, <laughs> 10 angry responses in a row and be faux angry on the internet. Exactly. Uh, see, the but the fatal flaw in your analogy is that the spoken word format is not the same as the written word. Yeah, see? You would think a guy in radio would know that, but uh, apparently not. Um, <laughs> All righty. See, now think about how humorous, how more humorous this segment would have been with a rim shot. Right? It would have been about 52% funnier, I think. Did you even hear that? That's on the laptop. It's not plugged in anymore. I, yeah, I just wanted to see what it would sound like. Okay. Um, Robert Lubke at the John Locke Foundation, writing about the editorial at the McClatchy uh, newspapers, The Observer, News and Observer, where they once again express their displeasure with the uh, freedom that parents have to choose the kind of education their kids shall receive. And he goes on, so he attacks these various arguments. Number one is that, oh, there's no accountability. It's, it's not true. There is accountability for these schools that get the vouchers. There is. He then says that the editors frequently dismiss the Opportunity Scholarship Program, or the OSP, as, quote, controversial. And this editorial even stated uh, that the OSP is supported by, quote, primarily Republicans. But that's just not true. The polling, and they cite a Civitas poll, from 2021 that found overwhelming support 66 to 25 percent support for the osp and this has been constant for years um republicans support it 71 to 23 percent democrats support it two to one 61 to 31 percent and unaffiliated supported 68 percent to 22 percent it is widely popular it is also popular among not just white people but black people too in fact black people supported more than white people do if this was any program of the left it would be touted as universally supported it would be touted as bipartisan it would be like all think about all of the stuff you see about the way they describe medicaid expansion for example this is this is how it would be covered. But it's not because it's choice, because it breaks the connection between parents and kids and the government. That's the problem going on here. And the point of the schools is to teach the kids what the society wants the kids to learn. It's one of the problems I have had, like when they were discussing at the state level, all of the history standards and the uh, uh, social studies standards. And you had one of the board, a couple of them actually, and they were like promoting the you know, critical race theory and they're making these arguments and all this stuff came up last year. And it's one of the biggest arguments I had against the proponents of these critical race theory ideas and instructional methods is that they're denying that the education system is utilized to advance 
a particular vision of the nation. And it is. You just want a different vision advanced, right? That's the point. And you criticize and, and you attack your opponents, the ones who are like, you know, we don't want critical race theory, and you're attacking them and saying, oh, you don't want us to teach history. When, when That is not the case at all, obviously. We do want history taught. But we want there to be some attention paid to the fact that, yes, America is pretty special. And you apparently do not. Now, the question is why? You know, why do you not want that to be a focus? I'm not saying the only focus. I'm saying a focus. And this was brought out in the debate where you had all of these examples of social justice warrior perspective and... You didn't have anybody promoting like these enlightenment ideas. And that's really important to understanding the debate about critical race theory is it 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 attacks the very pillars of the enlightenment. That's the point. So, yes, there is. And one of the earlier callers called it indoctrination. Yes, there is a point to touting the benefits of Western civilization and the ideals of the enlightenment upon which it was founded. There is a benefit to that. And if you doubt me, look around, folks. Look around. Where we are now is due to the benefits of those Enlightenment ideals. What do I know, though? I'm just a radio guy. News is next. Stay tuned. News Talk 1110-993-WBT.